Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're incredibly grateful to our members who support our work and hope that you will consider becoming a member. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our new Ukraine Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code APRIL2022 to receive 28% off a monthly or annual membership. That's bit.ly slash dsrmember and code APRIL2022. Thank you. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and uh, we are doing what we do every so often, which is when we find a book that is really important, that's really good, that we really think you ought to go out and buy, we get to talk to the authors and give you a, a sense of the book, and then we'll encourage you again to go out and buy it at the end. This time, we're doing that with uh, our uh, friend, Juliet Kayyem, who's professor in international security at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, where she's the faculty chair of the Homeland Security and Security and Global Health Projects, and she's also CEO of GRIP Mobility. How are you today, Juliet? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for having me this Friday afternoon. I think you're my last thing for the weekend. So I'm very, I'm very happy for that as well. It's been a long two weeks. Wonderful, but long. Well, uh, it, I, I'm, I'm not surprised that it's been long. This book is fantastic. I imagine it's the kind of thing that will be highly in demand. The book is called The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. Um, we certainly are living in an age of disasters. The title echoed when I was a little kid. We had a, a woman who would come and babysit for us. And at the end of every time she came and babysat, she said, I'm going to do now what the devil don't do. And I said, what's that? And she said, leave. Um, <laughs> That's and, and, and so I, I was raised, raised to believe that the devil never sleeps. The book talks about lessons of disasters and how to prepare for disasters and how we don't prepare for disasters. And I guess the, you know, the obvious first question is, why this book? Why now? I came to believe that we are thinking about disasters and disaster management all wrong as a society. And so the book is part opening up this window of this profession that I'm a part of to the world. Part of it is, or a huge part of it is history and trying to look at the commonalities amongst centuries of disasters 
And the goal was to simply say, in a world in which disasters are not random or rare, we actually need to measure success differently and we need to learn to fail safer, that we will be judged also on how we do because we can't stop the devil every time. So I describe in the beginning pages of the book, in my world, the world is divided simply into two time periods. There's what we call left of boom, which is all the things that you do to try to stop the devil from coming. Then you have the boom. And I'm agnostic, as you know, about the boom. It's not, it's not a pandemic book. It's not a cyber book. It's not a hurricane book. It is all of the above, uh, the devil generically. And then right of boom, which is the recovery response and resiliency efforts that we that we maintain. And I really wanted to focus essentially on that moment of the boom, that we always are talking about the past or the future. And what can we learn from centuries of disasters, all the mayhem, all the the crises, and distill it into essentially eight lessons that people could could grasp, everyone from the individual to to the CEO, and adopt. And so that's the why. The how I do like to talk about, which is some of the best reviews of it, use words like accessibility. One said it was chatty. I I really felt it was important to relate to audiences, not, not in a stupid way or a simplistic way, but just to tell stories, to have them rethink and reimagine the disasters that they have come to know because they are often discussed and to and to look at these stories differently or to learn new stories that could help them see okay well now i get why you would invest in this or prepare for that or or how you would stop that and that was important to me we always tend to look at things with what i call sort of temporal narcissism which is to say this moment is the best or the worst of all moments in history and yet a case could be made that we live in an age where the character of disasters is somewhat different. We were never on the verge of destroying the planet, but now we can think of at least two and possibly three ways we could do it. We could do it through climate change. We could do it through global nuclear war. We could conceivably do it through some other form of WMD disaster. These conflicts produce other kinds of conflicts. So, for example, with regard to Climate change, one of the, the, the changes is the frequency with which we see natural disasters. But with regard to global nuclear wars, we've just seen in the case of Ukraine, nuclear-powered countries, countries that have that shield, are able to do what they want with impunity and impose levels of disaster on other countries, because we're mechanized and high-tech, that weren't possible in the past. And of course, when you look at a future of AI and big data and cyber warfare and uh, autonomous weapons, new vistas of disaster open in front of us. Do you think it's an overstatement to say we're in an especially dangerous moment? Not at all. I mean, I am willing to concede, and I do in the book. And part of it, we just know more about what's going on in the world, is the nature of communication. So a tsunami. 40 years ago that wiped out an island, we might not otherwise know about, right? Or an earthquake or whatever else, but it's it's clear, just the data is just absolutely clear that the magnet, because of our globalization and connectivity, the magnitude of what might otherwise be an emergency, which I define in the book, right? 
to a crisis, a disaster, a crisis or a catastrophe, you know, choose your word, is increasing in time and scope. So you just look at the numbers, for example, of I have them in front of me of, of hurricane disasters between 2017 and 2020, 335 billion dollars in disaster in a hurricane damage uh, just in the U.S. alone. In all of the 1980s, that number even adjusted for inflation was only 38.2 billion. So you just get a sense of the magnitude, how we live, it's how we communicate. And what I do in the book, and I, I don't disagree with you, and part of what I, I take a different role in the book, which is I assume bad things. I hope people can stop them. I like those people, right? And I also hope people can build more resilient and keep us stronger. But there's like a role for like the people who are sort of thinking, you know, okay, right. I can't, I can't go back and I can't go forward like right now. And so what I do is really try to get people to put risk calculations to the side. And then what we really want to do is build for high consequence events, ones that are sort of disruptive to our society in ways that, that are unmanageable unless we are prepared for them. So I talk a lot in the book about something called stupid deaths. And I don't mean to intend the people who die are stupid, but it's just a concept in disaster management, which is uh, the perfect example is hurricanes. In the United States now, most people, almost all people who die in hurricanes do not die from water. Most hurricane deaths now are related to carbon monoxide poisoning. Then we call them hurricane deaths, but they essentially are the deaths that occur because people don't have access to energy. They put in generators, those generators aren't functioning well, and they die of carbon monoxide poisoning. So that's like not that that's a death that I can avoid, right? And that's a death that we can stop if we continue to support people in hurricane preparedness, but also recognize now there's these sort of downstream or what I call the cascading losses. And so thinking about ways in which we can minimize those, those cascading losses, because those are, anyway, you count them, they're still deaths. And one of the challenges is, of course, is it's a hard way to talk because I don't want it to sound like, well, the one or the two or the three that died in the hurricane, that's sort of acceptable, right? That's it. But I want people to measure success in ways in which they're seeing that the investment in the preparedness is minimizing the deaths. So think about COVID. This is a book that you know treats COVID like other disasters. I know it's a novel virus, but it actually follows the attributes of most disaster management. 200,000 dead is not good, but if I compare it to 1 million, which we're about to hit in the United States, then you begin to see, okay, what's the... What would my investments have saved us if, if, if in January, February, March, we had had leadership that took it seriously? So it's a reframing of success essentially on the right side of the boom to say there are ways to measure failing safer. And I can show you, you know, all these examples in which that is true, in which we're not stopping the harm. The world is still sucks on the right side of the boom, but we are, it sucks less. <laughs> and, it, uh, and uh, you know, our, less bad is our 20, 21st century standard. And that's, and I want people to begin to accept that because then they'll begin to not throw up their hands and say, oh my God, nuclear pandemic, cyber, I can't control anything. The world's on fire and say, well, actually I can at least, you know, not at least put a little bit of water on that raging flame. Yeah, it's interesting, by the way, when you talk about hurricanes, that uh, the cycle is 
first the planet suffers carbon dioxide poisoning, and then people suffer carbon monoxide poisoning. I, I think that one of the things that, you know, you talk about the book being accessible. I, it's an extremely well-written book. It is very substantive. But one of the things that struck me in reading the book is that a key to preparedness, and a lot of the book deals with preparedness, is reading a book like this. You have to think about disasters in a different way, in a systematic way. It's not to say, you know, you're never going to sleep with both eyes closed again. You know, it's that you, you actually figure out how do I build preparedness and resilience into my life? Because I know I'm going to face things like this. And, I, you know, I think when, when people hear the subject, perhaps they wince a bit. But not only is it a good book, but the time spent on the book could have hugely beneficial consequences compared to dealing with the issues after. Right. Or, or worrying about all the things that could go back. I mean, I don't, we don't need another book about the viruses that are going to blow out our, you know, that, that's not my book, you know, the, the, the viruses in the future that are going to kill, you, you know, mankind. Well, first of all, I appreciate that because that is obviously got to get people to it. And, and I think it's helpful to describe the title of the book because it's actually quite optimistic or it comes from a story that's optimistic. I, uh, because of the world I've been in, I get invited a lot to uh, these weird memorials a year after something or whatever. And I say they're weird because you're never sure what your mood is, right? You're, they're, they're celebratory. People survive. They're moving on. But of course, you're, you're memorializing people. So I was in Joplin, Missouri, a year after the, the 2011 Joplin tornado killed about 120 people in a small, small town in Missouri. Hugely devout town, un, you know, unbelievably conservative. And the recovery effort about how to deal with the next ter- uh, tornadoes in terms of their their preparedness and the buildings and the sirens and the and the alert systems was actually fell on a woman named Jane Cage. She's a was a widow or is a widow in her 60s. And she sort of took it upon herself. And she's incredibly energetic. And I'm staring at her in my cynical East Coast, West Coast way and uh, thinking, you know, this is you know, this is a benefit of religion, right? People, she's she's very devout and and it was condescending to me. I talked to her for a while and realized like her faith was unbelievably tactical and operational. It was not about deliverance or that's God's way. Her faith was about God gave us agency, let's assert it. So she says, I said, how are you? How are you like this? She says, look, I live in in Missouri. There's going to be more tornadoes. The devil never sleeps, but he only wins if we don't do better next time. That's sort of the story of of the book, right? Is another, we, we have this opportunity to assert to assert agency. And so that then really changed the way I I thought about things because disasters had always been treated or often treated as sort of one-offs, like a surprise. And I, the word disaster itself means a a misalignment of the stars. It puts mankind, humankind in a passive position. You sort of, oh, you know, star-crossed love. Oh, we have no control over it. Well, we do. I mean, we have control over how it unfolds. And, And the stories show the moments where Either a disaster was averted, Suez Canal. There's a counterexample like Fukushima versus Onagawa, the nuclear facility that did not melt down, or that the measure of success is, is actually in, in who wasn't harmed. For example, I talk about the Boston Marathon. Three people died at the Boston Marathon bombing, but about 297 people who were taken to area hospitals, quite wounded. 
if you made it to a hospital, you didn't die. That's the kind of preparedness because there had been lots of planning for a mass casualty event at the marathon. That's the kind of preparedness where you don't say, oh, good, three people died. Of course not. But you say, okay, well, I'm calculating the investment that I made. Yeah, no, I remember talking to the one of, I guess the guy was the head of the emergency management in Boston right after that happened. And he said that they had run drills on this like a, a few days before. Yeah. It, it, so it was- I was a state homeland security advisor. So I, before this, so I had overseen the planning on the state side. So National Guard and state assets and stuff. And then, of course, it's, it's run Boston as your, what we call the incident command, the Boston uh, emergency management. And uh, we, we continuously ran scenarios where there's a disruption at the finish line. We don't care what the cause of the disruption is. In other words, at the moment of the boom, it could be terrorists, it could be a generator, it could be aliens. We don't care, right? At the moment of the boom, all that stuff that's on the left side of the boom, why didn't we stop it? Why weren't the brothers caught? Why didn't we follow these intelligence clues? You don't care. Like maybe one day we'll care, but not at that moment. And it was those investments at at the at the training and the what we call sort of mutual aid that saved a significant number of lives that day. Because those, you know, but for their ability to get to hospitals in every which way, I mean, people were being you know driven and pickups and stuff. Uh, there was a triage system at the hospitals. So, yeah, and I think, you know, that's one of the important things about this book. You know, you talk about the title, The Devil Never Sleeps. The subtitle is really the punchline because it's learning to live in an age of disasters, right? Not just stay alive, but to live your life in a, in a decent way. And part of the problem is, of course, we don't want to think about these things. We don't prepare well for them. And there are also a lot of special interests out there that don't want us to prepare, that don't want to talk about it. They don't want you talk about it in the book nuclear power industry didn't want to talk about certain kinds of disasters. And certainly the energy industry didn't want to talk about climate change and, and so forth, which leads me to a very weird off-the-wall question, which will lead someplace substantive. But you know, you won't be surprised now because this is not our first conversation. Did you see the movie Don't Look Up? Yes, of course. Which I think your book should come with every viewing of Don't Look Up. Because Don't Look Up was, to me, a metaphor. You know, I mean, it was a movie. It had its own story. But, of course, it wasn't a story about an asteroid hitting the Earth. It was a story about climate change. It was a story about COVID. And the the punchline of Don't Look Up was actually, you know, people like Ronald Reagan in the 1980s talked to Gorbachev and said, if the Martians invaded, would we team up to fight them? And Gorbachev said, yes. But the reality is that when there's a global threat, we actually don't. We, we have not come together to do what is necessary to you know, rise to the challenge of global threats. And, and, and that's something that as I was reading your book, I kept thinking, you know, how do we get policymakers to have the political will to ignore the special interests and to have the foresight to imagine you were in a democratic administration. I was in a democratic administration. I like a lot of what's happened in this administration. I would say if we did a deep dive on how we're preparing for the next pandemic, we would not be happy. No, no, I think that's right. And I mean, a couple, so one is what you're describing at the start of your question was, was something I reflect on, which is called the preparedness paradox, which is 
one of the challenges of getting ready for disasters is that the more ready you are, the less harm ensues. And therefore, you are accused of overreacting or you know, waste of money. And so the best example of this, of course, was Y2K, that as billions of dollars are being invested in computer systems to make sure that they turn from 1999 to 2000 without disruption. And it was real that they were very concerned that the computers would not hold because it was a successful transition. There were some blips, but because it was a successful transition, people's narrative of Y2K now is all those a lot of people freaked out when, in fact, it was that investment. So you're constantly trying to justify yourself. So a world in which you have sort of perpetual preparedness, you're not at perfection. I'm so clear about that. I basically say, I say in the book, all the mayhem in the world leads me to eight lessons that will make me 80% safer. Like that is just, you know, I'm not a perfectionist. And, and I think people need to hear that. So in a New Yorker story about the book and about me, she asked me, What's the difference between paranoid and prepared? And I said, it's the, it's, it's the pursuit of perfection, right? I mean, prepared, you just, you're not going to be perfectly prepared, but you're going to be able to minimize the consequences of the harm on the bigger issue that you raise. That is a, cha- I mean, that's a, cha- that's the, that's sort of the last chapter of the book, which is, at, you know, you're in this field for only five minutes and you know that the challenges ahead can't be dealt with home by home, town by town, company by company, that you need a systemic approach. And, and a little bit of my book, or not a little bit, is in the meanwhile, right? I mean, in other words, in the meanwhile, we can still save people, communities, businesses, finances, uh, you know, health, all, all that. Stuff. We still have agency because of the lack of of organization and, 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 and ability to respond. I don't love it. I get it. You follow me on Twitter. I'm pretty realistic about, I don't love it. My contribution to this is to not tune out because it's not getting fixed, but just to simply say, okay, what can I solve? Yeah. Yeah. And of course you bring up an interesting challenge because there is a public policy component of this. But when you look at the tornado paradigm or you look at the paradigm of cyber and the likelihood of cyber attacks affecting us all, there is an individual preparedness component to this. Yeah, the single point of failure in so many of these disasters. You know, we think of the big ones like Fukushima or BP oil spill, whatever. But a lot of these disasters are just what, what I call a single point of failure, right? It is we've set up systems in which someone making a stupid mistake, Sony, Literally, a single system administrator, that's all it was, single system administrator passing out his password incorrectly, thinking that it was correct, I'm not blaming him, but let the North Koreans into the entire system. These are not sophisticated attacks. And so so part of it is, one of the recommendations is avoid the single point of failure, right? You can have lots of redundancies. And it's not that the bad thing won't happen. It just means that the magnitude of the harm will be lessened, right? So you want to you want to be able to sort of dance with the devil and, and and the delayed devil is a is a is a good day. So there is agency across the board. I, I talk about 9-11, for example, is a perfect example where a single individual who was very nervous after the uh, 1995 attacks on the World Trade Center, Morgan Stanley, I think it's Morgan Stanley, you'll forgive me if I'm wrong on this, you know, was was so paranoid he got everyone prepared so that when the second tower 
when the first tower was hit, he evacuated despite what uh, public authorities were saying, the second tower and sort of saved the entire companies or the individuals sort of being prepared for that. And I, I talk about one of the, the sort of everyone's favorite story. It was also the excerpt in the Atlantic is, is the story of the other Fukushima, Onagawa nuclear facility, which most none of us ever hear about because you're always looking at the bad news. Onagawa was closer to the ocean and closer to the epicenter of the earthquake. It was actually more harm than Fukushima in terms of it's still not open in terms of its ability to withstand the, the earthquake. But uh, it did not radiate. It did not have a radiation leak. So in and that is because of a single individual at the plant who taught everyone to fail safer. Right. So he understood that the plant was vulnerable. He did not buy into the narrative, as you were describing, that nuclear energy is safe. This is a narrative that was sold to the Japanese after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And he says, we will fail. And our measure of success will be, will there be radiation leak? And uh, they turned it off in time. Uh, Fukushima had lived in a world in which they thought, well, this is a perfectly safe facility and did not know how to fail safer so that they basically just watched the water cascade into the radiation, into the, into the nuclear facility. Yeah. And, and by the way, you know, one of the things that strikes me, 9-11 offers a good example of this, is that a preparation at one level, but not at another level doesn't necessarily work. I actually have spent a lot of time in my life doing scenario exercises, sort of wargaming. And two years before 9-11, did a scenario exercise on the top floor of the World Trade Center with the Naval War College hosted by a large financial firm about terrorist attacks on Wall Street. And we discussed these possibilities. And two years later, something like 40 people from that law from that financial firm were killed in the attack. They had sat through this. They knew the risks, but the level of preparation was not up to the the challenge of the moment, no faulting them. But it, it, it does say that, you know, sort of thinking about a risk isn't the same as preparing for a risk. But um, you got to start with the thing. I mean, the first chapter is like, get your head around it. I mean, and I, you know, me and I'm incredibly, you know, I, I think people who don't know me think that I must be Miss Bloom and Doom. I'm totally not like I because in a world in which I can assert agency or not, I think you're happier trying to assert some agency over something that is also something that you may not be able to control on an individual basis. So whether as a as a CEO or as a faculty member or as a mother, these are areas that I can have control over. I say in the book, it is not rocket science. We are not creating a vaccine. We are, you know, this is about communication and fail-safe systems and not having single points of failure and eight chapters that will that will hopefully give you some power over something that we that will be so easy to feel powerless over, because often we are. I could go on talking about this at, at at great length. It's a fascinating book. There's one story though I'd like you to tell before we go, because it, it sort of lived with me as I read it, because it was sort of a I don't know, a great case study. And that's the town of Paradise in California and how they sort of ignored literally giant warning signs all around them and created a a potential for disaster and how they're dealing with it now. So I I host a series or had before the pandemic and we're getting started again for a digital series for my radar, which is people don't know it by name, but it's basically the radar system and all your weather apps. 
and they're getting like lots of weather stations are getting very interesting climate change. This is a, they're not they're not hiding from it, right? There's, this is the future. And so what we wanted to do is go back again to places that had been destroyed. So we went to a bunch of places. Paradise is one of them. And Paradise, of course, was part of the wildland urban interface. It is the WUI, as I learned to say when I did the audio book, because I didn't know how to say it, which is people desiring to live in the forest. And it was a, 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 a movement that uh, expanded in, uh, in particular in the Pacific Northwest. Fast forward, Paradise is one of these communities. It's on a ledge. And the people who live there are, you know, people who wanted to avoid Sacramento, like the Sacramento was too fast paced for them. And they loved it. and It was beautiful. And they decided to sort of build it in a way that let them live in the wildland, even though they're human beings and even though forests catch on fire. So they had single lanes up and down this cliff. They were building homes at one with nature rather than to protect them from nature. And then they stopped deforesting. And I know that has a lot of people remember when, when Trump said that about sweeping the forest floor. Actually, there's you know a lot of people who's quietly said he's not wrong, that that the burn the deforesting, the burning of the shrub and the making sure that trees are far enough apart actually saves lives because you don't create what's called a fire ladder. So you have a big problem, which is our infrastructure is old and there's a electrical grid wire goes down uh, about 20 miles from paradise. So I can't solve that problem, right? Like this is, you know, that's a big problem, but paradise had not, had not dealt with evacuation. It had created what's called the fire canopy. It literally was a town underneath trees that formed a fire canopy. And its exodus route was single lane. So almost all of the nearly 100 deaths occurred in people's cars trying to get out, right? I mean, your heart stops, right? Because those are, again, avoidable deaths if you just have an adequate evacuation system and one in which you can move cars that stall or whatever. I mean, this is your horrifying nightmare that you can't get out. And so they're starting to rebuild and in a variety of ways, new materials for the homes, deforesting quite aggressively. Uh, so the trees are further apart. Uh, so you don't create these canopies. Um, and also changing the infrastructures, um, including the lanes and things like, I know this is crazy and it's not going to solve climate change, but new, new asphalt that actually can withstand heat so that your tires don't melt. Now, of course, these are responses to a larger issue, which is, should we be living in these areas? And I talk about managed retreat. Maybe, you know, maybe the devil wins this battle and we retreat. We manage our retreat away, and that may be a measure of success as well. So places like Paradise are thinking seriously, insurance companies are thinking seriously about, about managing retreat. Uh, so it's a, just a fa fascinating case study on you, you can do this better, you can minimize the harms, but you're, you're, you're also sometimes, if you can't, should we manage the retreat? I don't mean to, to make light of it, but as you were talking about it, you know, my wife, who you know, insists that every night as part of our relaxation exercise, we watch a murder mystery. And uh, she has learned one lesson of murder mysteries is never go into the forest. If you go into the forest in a murder mystery, you will be killed. And she has concluded that the, what the, one of the ways she is going to you know, do the kind of planning you talked about is she's never going to live more than a 10 minutes walk from a Starbucks. Oh yeah. No, that is, that is, uh, or tennis shoes. That's, that's, uh, I say, so it comes down to tennis shoes. I have tennis shoes wherever I go. Look, I am not a survivor. I want to just be clear here. I am the, the words prepper do not appear in my book. I am not a survivalist. My husband 
uh, you know, the, the joke in my house is that mom's idea of roughing it is a motel without cable, which is very true. I do not like hiking. I'm not like, you know, I, um, well, you know, I've, I've seen pictures of your wife in the New England winter and I, I approve she's like in this like Arctic jumper and like, you know, no elements will find her. That is me. Right. I in, am, yeah. in a dog park in Washington Square Park. Let's yeah. be clear. <laughs> She's not. That's roughing it. That is roughing it. But I will say, I'll end with this funny story about sort of that. That is true. The period that I did some research on sort of what kind, what you know, of a of a class of people that are able to be prepared for the pandemic, right? Because we know that the the differential is of socioeconomic status. What kind of people were most prepared? and able to adapt to the pandemic with the least amount of mental, physical, whatever stress. And they were measuring across all sorts of metrics. Uh, And there's a longitudinal study of this. And one of the variants or one of the the data points that proves to be accurate, which I think is really interesting, which is people, these are not survivalists or preppers, but just people who enjoyed zombie movies or horror flicks (laughs) as a genre. And the, the reasoning is, is that they were not uncomfortable anticipating the unimaginable, but they also knew the lesson of those stories, which is the human beings that asserted agency uh, did not blindly go into the forest and were able to adapt in particular in the zombie genre, right? Where generations of humans are now encountering zombies. We're in the third or fourth, fifth generation of, of zombies that the adaptation actually is the thing that helps you survive. So I always I always thought that was interesting. Like your your ability to imagine the unimaginable actually makes you better. It makes you stronger. It makes you more resilient. So I agree with her about the forest, but still watch well, those movies. Still watch those movies. No, no, we every every single night. But it does it does suggest that the the metaphor for this book is the Geico commercial where the four kids are running from the killer, and one of them says, "Let's go hide over there behind the chainsaws." Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and exactly. and it's like, no, no, don't hide. <laughs> that is don't, exactly right. Don't right. hide behind the chains. Yeah, it's like the poltergeist. She's telling you not to go into the light. Like, right. what are you all doing? Like, she's right. telling you not to go into the light. Exactly. That is so funny. Exactly right. Well, the book is called The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. We live in an age of disasters. And so books like this are essential. This one is more than accessible. It's compelling. It's smart. It's based on extraordinary experience of Juliet's. And I strongly encourage everybody to go out and get the book and read it. And uh, I thank you, Juliet, for joining us. And hopefully you'll be back again. soon. Of course, in my, in my, in my uh, panel role, but I'm so grateful to you. And, uh, and thank you so much for those kind words. It means that, as you know, when you write books, you're like, you know, by the time you put them out, you're like, this is, what is this? And it's just very grateful about the reception that it's getting. I'm really yeah, proud. no, I personally just like to curl up in the fetal position under my <laughs> desk until <laughs> well, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you that I, I'm not a violent person. So who's the person that you want to punch when you're on a book tour? The person who comes up to you go, what's your next book? And you're like, you know what? Like, like yeah, no, that's one. The person I want to punch <laughs> on the book tour, and I've, I've done seven or eight books now. And on every book tour, there's the person who comes up to you and goes, you know, I love the part in the book where blank, and it's the first paragraph. Yes. And it's like, come on, <laughs> read, <laughs> read more than the first no, paragraph. Exactly. You know, I had a guy the other night say, so what's your next book? And I look at him, I go, 
that's like asking a woman who just had a baby, does she want another? Like, we're not discussing this now. Like, ask me Absolutely. what I'm saying. Absolutely. It's, it's <laughs> no, and they're the corollary for those of you who have friends who are writing books, and I don't recommend it, is people who say, how's the book coming? That that's not yeah, nice. No. That's no no author likes that question. No, 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 no. It is, oh. it is, yeah. Can I be helpful or is there anything you want me to read? That <laughs> those are good words, can I, but can I cook something for you? Yeah, exactly. Anyway, exactly. The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters by Juliet Kayam. Go get it. And thanks everybody for joining us. We'll be back again soon. And in the interim, take care of yourselves. Bye bye. Hi, I'm Grant Haver, and I wanted to introduce you to the newest podcast on the DSR Network, Next in Foreign Policy. Every other week, Zoe Weinberg and I talk with new and emerging foreign policy experts about the issues of today and tomorrow. We've covered everything from the war in Ukraine to the impact of pop culture on policy. So if you want to better understand the people and ideas that will be shaping the debate in Washington and around the world for years to come, check us out wherever you find your podcasts.